City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Acres and acres and years, he suddenly realises the lights on and his microphone's nowhere near his mouth. <laughs> but <laughs> it's all what's sort going of on here? <laughs> yeah. Yes, and that was me, Kim, was saying what's going on here, and she still probably doesn't know. Yeah, um, I should I'm know. Kevin I'm Healy. That's right. You're, you're, you're organising this. Mm-hmm. I'm Kevin yeah, Healy. It is City Limits. It's the fourth Wednesday of the month, and as a result, we haven't got a program. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's as simple as that. <laughs> um, that's the new plan, yeah, right? That's the new plan. We We've got plenty. Plenty to happens. talk about, but we, um, in fact, the interview we were hoping to get for the second half has fallen through. So we, but we, if we have got uh, yesterday, we're going to do a bit of cheating here. I must admit, yesterday, I'm just that was the clink of cups. I'm going to pour some tea while I'm talking. The um, yesterday sloth took over, and I was listening to the faux show here on yesterday morning, which is on three CR, Friends of the Earth, Friends of the Earth show. And thank you for correcting that. And uh, um, clarifying, clarifying, mm-hmm. uh, and. Um, Thank you for clarifying my correct clarification, <laughs> correct thing. That's mm-hmm. very good of you. My pleasure. <laughs> Some really interesting teapots and um, Yeah, well, don't know what's happened to our normal teapot today, but anyway. Um, and um, they, Lynn, um, Lynn um, not Lynn, um, Rachel Linsky, who is um, their, she's been on this program, she's their sustainable cities person, and uh, Rachel was um, talking about roads and the over- roads overtaking Melbourne and also the situation at Ararat where there's currently a picket line trying to stop big roads tearing down yeah. trees that are that are part of the local Indigenous culture and, and important to the local Indigenous people. And we exactly. think that's had a lot of coverage on this station over, over the while. As it should. And it's reaching a, a crisis where the police are going to move in. And um, so we, we might even talk to someone on site later. But mm-hmm. we're going to replay part of that because it talks about stuff that it talks about issues. I thought, well, we might get we might get Rachel on tomorrow. Then I thought, hang on, the interview's been done. Why not? Why might let Sloth take over <laughs> let's, well, and just replay it? Yeah, let's let Rachel just relax. <laughs> that's Today. Right, yes, yeah. that's right. She's been on the show before. Yeah. She was here when Eugenia and I did um, the show about transport and women's experiences of transport right. in yeah. the lead up to International Women's Day. Yep. Yeah. Great yeah. campaign. So, okay, so we're going to have that, and we might, uh, we might, in fact, one of our staff members here is up there at the picket line this mm-hmm. week, so um, we might even get onto her before Fantastic. the show's over, so we'll see how we go. Yep. Um, other than that, I was toying with playing a bit of music, doing a bit of indulgence, but we'll see how we go on that at some point. So who, uh, how do we decide, like, who chooses the music out of you and me? Well, I've got the CDs. Right. Yeah. But I control the computer. You do. So, yeah. You do. That's right. <laughs> hmm. Right. I can see. Okay. We'll have to have an off-air blue over this one. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a, we'll definitely play my music. <laughs> <laughs> That's been decided. <laughs> That's it. Well, it, I mean, ninety every all the rest of the time, it's I choose the music. You do, yeah. you do. That's right. I'll let I'll let you have this one. Jeez. If we do, if show. we if we pack it round to playing anything, yeah. Uh, there's a bloke called Tim Gurner who the Financial Review keeps pointing out is on Australia's richest rich list on the rich list. 
Richest rich, rich well, list. The rich list, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, he's one of the richest on the rich list. Yeah. Uh, he's a developer and he has, uh, there's currently a situation up in Queensland. He's building this luxury apartment, block of apartments, uh, in Fortitude Valley in Sydney, in Brisbane. Okay. And uh, the, um, the dozens, it just says dozens, doesn't say how many workers are currently being charged by the Jackboots Commission, the Australian the, the, Commission the jackboots commission that pleases the industry and construction unions, mm. smash the unions, jackboots commission. Uh, they've been charged with um, with breaking the law and walking off the job because the the builder the builder who's in this Gurner thing um, had uh, has tore down union flags. The workers put up union flags and they were torn down because union flags are totally illegal. And their safety officer, the company safety officer, was taking photos around the place with workers, and they went, had no idea why. So there's there's been an industrial dispute, right. but of course the end result is for walking off illegally as they see it. Uh, the workers are the ones being charged on this bloke's um, site, uh. and recently the government raised individual fines in these cases from fourteen thousand to forty six thousand dollars. So the workers are facing fines of forty six thousand oh dollars for being upset because the boss tore down union flags. I mean, and I think we you'd agree, would you not? I'm sure you would agree, Meg. <laughs> I feel like that, this is a leading that he, question. That putting up a union flag is one of the most illegal acts you can imagine. Oh, on a, yes. On a building site. Yes, oh, yes, yes. Yes, yeah, I knew you'd agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, 40,000, 46,000. 46, 46, 46 each, yeah. That's, so like that, an, that's like a complete, that's an annual wage for many people in Australia. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, that's, they can spend a year paying it off. Oh, my gosh. Um, now, the... St. Moritz, the old, um, the old ice skating place at St. Kilda, whereas teenagers we used to go to try and con young women. Oh, my uh, gosh. Well, at least we boys did. And I suppose the end we went to try and con young men. I'm not sure how it worked there. But anyway, Let's not speculate. Was, yeah, it was I don't a know. Saturday afternoon at St. Moritz. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it's now, um, it, over, it overlooks the bay. It's a beautiful site there. And, uh, and Gurner's now developing that. You'll be pleased to hear. Same guy. Same guy, Tim. Yeah. Huh. Um, and he's uh, secured a loan from the three hundred million loan from the ANZ Bank, and he's going to develop this. So that's good news, isn't it? It's going to be a big development there, and he's doing well, it. Is it going to be yeah. a bigger ice skating rink? Lux- no, it's a luxury apartment oh. development. No, oh. the skating rink's long since gone. Oh. Luxury apartment development. Uh, and he's sold over five hundred million dollars of apartments in the three building project already. Um, So it's going to be great, isn't it? Um, What I really want to know is where can you go ice skating now? Seriously, where do you go? Sweden, Iceland, Greenland. Canada. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the answer. Now, here's another interesting situation. The case with speaking of Queensland and workers, etc., um, not nearly as serious as um, workers putting up a flag and being fined forty six grand each is a is an employer who pays them absolutely nothing. Right uh, in Clive Palmer. Oh yes. Um, and Clive's case because he's been taken to court by the um, by the liquidator of his nickel mine, saying that you know there are a few strange things happen. Now these were interesting, isn't it? Mm. Um, it, it it went into liquidation owing two hundred million. But here's the, the, the counsel for the liquidator in introducing the case last week said his company paid $135 million 
to a $2 company controlled by his wife, $100 million to another, another related company for worthless coal tenements and gave $1 million to a to a um, Kazakhstani woman out of love and affection. Um, Extraordinary is is in fact an understatement, Graham Gibson QC, etc. Now, he said that, um, and of course, they went, 800 people lost their job. The federal government has paid 66 million owing to the work, and that's only a part of what they really owe because there's a limit on what the government pays. Um, And they're they're still owed, you know, Tons, and he's supposed to be now. He claims he's now worth five billion because he won that case against Chinese company last year. Um, and of course, his nephew uh, Clive Mensink, who was his partner in the whole thing, is now around the world and won't come back to Australia for fear of being charged. So, not that there's anything wrong with what he's done. No, but. Uh, in the first transaction, Palmer's wife Anna was appointed as the sole director of one of one of his companies, China First. QNI then paid that's his main company, paid one hundred and thirty five million to acquire shares in the company. Why would a company that was in that was insolvent pay one hundred and thirty five million for the privilege of acquiring shares in a company which immediately before the transaction had a paid up capital of two dollars? Mm. Mr. Gibson posed to the court. When QNI went bust, China first would then have priority, and this is what this is the why, priority over all other unsecured creditors and employees. The second transaction mm. involved a security agreement between Palmer's company Waratah Coal and QNI, in which mining tenements in the Galilee Basin were put up as security worth worth a hundred million dollars. We say there was no commercial benefit in QNI acquiring the tenements as the coal project was worthless. There was no way you could describe the mining assets as liquid assets. They were anything but. Gibson said the Waratah coal tenements were exploration permits, not mining leases, and there was no operating mine. Palmer has been accused of siphoning off money from QNI for his other business and political interests. Um, He tried Mm. to adjourn the case, but he failed there. And he also gave money to this woman, um, in, and, and, he, and also his um, his father-in-law is in Bulgaria, and he he got a two point seven eight million um, off off him. So there's all this money floating around. Anyway, it'll all come out in the case, but it's just interesting. And yeah, well, what's the case? The the liquidators, well, the liquidators are taking claiming him. that um, they want to get money off him to pay the debts of that company. Right. He's denying he was in fact in, he was in fact the director of which, which of course he was. Oh. Um, and um, so, it, you know, it's, he's just trying to avoid the debts they to can, his they workers can avoid, and to everyone else. avoid yeah. paying it because they don't have the money because they gave it to a different company, mm-hmm. which they own. All that, yes. Yeah. And the, the liquidator might suggest that that money should come back and be paid to, to say, for instance, the workers. <sighs> that Good would heavens. be great. I mean, hopefully they do get to, It sounds like that uh, the person who was representing the liquidators was in good form anyway yeah, that article yes, yes. Yeah. Well, he's just doing his job I guess yeah. the old uh, the old silk but anyway yeah. that's good that's good I'm going to pour a bit more tea you want a bit more tea um, no thank you right really there. nice though right there. Right there. Yes, look yes. speaking of companies <coughs> and yes. things sort of not working out um, SKM Recycling mm. have you seen this there was an article in the Guardian because there was a time there was like a point like last was it last year? I don't know. Um, when they couldn't collect any of the recycling that they were supposed to collect mm. and all the recycling went to landfill instead. Yep. Did that happen in your area? Because in, in, well, in well, Northcote yeah, it was I, like that. I assume so because it was happening in Moreland. I think it was happening right. with us as well, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, that, so the Guardian article says that more than 20,000 tonnes of glass, paper and plastic was dumped in landfill during that time. And um, But the fear is that that could turn into hundreds of thousands of tonnes if the company is declared insolvent when taken to court this week or if it just stops operating as the founder has threatened. Mm. Yeah, well, they're, they're now saying they are going to close. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, because China doesn't want to take the materials that they used to take and recycle in some, you know, sometimes dubious circumstances, backyard recycling and really, uh, you know, poor health outcomes and poor health conditions for people who are doing this work. Um, so, you know, they put a stop on being like the, the garbage yeah. garbage dump of, of, you know, Australia's rubbish. And quite properly, I would think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, because we don't deal with our own waste. The same with the nuclear industry and, and, and we've talked to... Um, you know about the western suburbs and mm. the rubbish there and the fires and everything which is why there was a stop on the um on them taking the recycling because they weren't storing it properly and yeah. it was a, a health risk mm. here so you can imagine what kind of a health risk it would be shipped on mass to china and other countries yep, and india and all over the place yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there was somewhere else that's recently mm. brought it back indonesia has um said it would return eight containers of waste to Australia. So, <laughs> Send it back to us. Yeah. Was good on <laughs> yeah, I saw yeah. that. That's uh, yeah, well, good, yeah, well, fair enough too. I mean, yeah. it's, and well, I mean, it comes down to creating less of it. And, well, exactly. And, and that we do produce taking care of ourselves. That's so, and yeah. yeah, Plastic Free July is, you know, um, sort of – it should be plastic free every month of the mm. year, ideally. But there's just – yeah, there's so much plastic. It's yeah, hard yeah. to deal with. But, you know, you have to think about where it actually goes after you put it in the bin. And if it's for recycling, why can't we recycle it here? Why do we have to send it off somewhere else? I mean, that's, that's a rhetorical question. I'm yeah. sure you can't answer. But it, nonetheless, that's, that's obviously but, the question. But yeah. it does just often get melted down yeah. into other little plastic toys and things. Like more, pla- it doesn't go away. Mm. It just changes form. That's it comes right. back as cheap plastic more toys. Plastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, yes, it's um, it's an ongoing problem. It's interesting in in Moreland now. Um, in the green bins, which mm. were just for garden stuff, yeah, uh, you can now put your food scraps. Right, uh, and they're recycling those through yeah. the green bins. In I don't know other places are doing it, but uh, I know that in Tassie you can in Hobart you can buy. Um, uh, mulch, like soil compost. Mm, you can yeah. buy compost from the tip. Yeah. So I think that they have some kind of process there, but I can't remember. I don't know exactly what it is. But yeah, that's so important. Yeah, the council does provide mulch to things, but yeah, but it, yeah it's just that um, you know, a, a, if you haven't got a compost bin yourself and you feel guilty throwing it out, I often think I should give it to friends who've got compost bins. Yeah. But if you can throw it in a green bin, it's, it's bloody good. It's and great. It gets, yeah, it becomes because a significant amount of the landfill is. Food scraps. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. We're, we're so, we throw away so much food. Yep, we do. Mm. We do. Um, now, interestingly enough, a bit of history here. Back in the uh, Whitlam government, they brought in Medibank, which was, which was <laughs> free, free health care. Yeah. Um, I've heard uh, of Medibank. <laughs> that's, right, they, that's right. Well, it became, it became a private insurance mob, and then they, right. that was privatised by the 
by the, local, the Liberal government two or three years ago. It's now a private company. Yeah. But Medibank was Medibank Insurance was owned by the government for a number of years. But Medibank itself was the original Medi. What's now Medicare was called Medibank back then, yeah. and it was you know a levy on people's wages based on their income. Mm-hmm. It was two and a half percent for everybody, but two and a half percent on certain incomes is more than two and a half percent on other yeah. incomes. Obviously, yeah. to state the mathematical obvious, mm-hmm. showing what a brilliant mathematician <laughs> I am, and uh, and you got that under control. Uh-huh. Yep. And uh, if you if you're a punter, of course, you do have mathematics under control, but <laughs> other things perhaps not under control, and. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, it was bought. It was bought in a, as a as a universal healthcare system, so people could get free healthcare. But there was already um, free healthcare before that. Right? No, there wasn't. It oh, was, wasn't there? Uh, no, not not as such. Well, and um, oh. and you had to pay doctors, etc. There was there were fees, so um, it wasn't it wasn't absolutely free. I think there were probably oh. for pensioners and things. It was, but I can't oh. quite recall now. So but, there was no yeah. bulk billing, basically, um, and stuff like that. Not before that. No, no, that I'm aware of. Um, okay. And. Um, so Medibank was brought in, but then the Fraser government came in after throwing out Whitlam and got rid of Medibank. And in fact, we formed a group called the Medibank, something other, Save Medibank or something. We even employed a worker at the social planning office at Fitzroy at the time to work on it. And we remember we had a march um, through the city carrying a coffin, which ended up on my front veranda for years. Mm. <laughs> um, but I, I was, there's a bloke called Jack Arrowsmith. This is an interesting little just side story. Jack Arrowsmith mm-hmm. was this quite tall um, union official, lovely bloke. And he and I were at the front, but he was about a foot taller than me, <laughs> <laughs> carrying this coffin, so it did make it a bit, <laughs> bit interesting. Um, <laughs> but anyway, Medibank... That's dis- not good planning, I'm it, sorry. Despite guys. our brilliant protest, yeah. Medibank sunk. Oh, and no. it, was, it was wiped out by the Fraser government. And so later on, the Hawke government... Um, bought in Medicare, which has lasted till now. Mm. And Medicare is the same system, 2.5% or whatever the percentage is. Mm. And I always argue that if health costs are, are so high they can't afford them anymore, then just increase the levy, mm-hmm. make it 3 4%, so there's enough money mm-hmm. for people to, uh, for the free health system to go on. And we don't really need a private system. But and, they love the free market, you know, Kevin. The free market. They and in fact, the, the Howard government, in fact, bought in all sorts of incentives yep. to go into private health insurance. Well, not just incentives. Including rebates. And, yeah, but yeah. also they just start just basically Cutting. Um, fining you for not having it the older that you get. That's right. That's it's right. Cost so, more. Yeah, so there are all go. sorts of incentives. Well, now we've reached the end of that, the, the, reaching that. Mark Fitzgibbon um, is the head of NIB, the private health insurance mob, and his latest proposal is to get rid of Medicare altogether. Yes, he says... Um, so stressful. Yeah, abolish Medicare and make private health insurance compulsory <laughs> with the government paying the premiums of those unable to meet the costs themselves. So he cares for the poor. If the poor can't pay, the government should meet their costs and give it to him. I saw the um, headline saying, kill Bambi. Yeah, that's it, yeah. In a radical solution, <laughs> radical. See, radical used to mean left wing all the time. Now radical is right wing. Right wing yeah. economics are radical. It used to, radical used to mean left. Yeah. Anyway, in a radical solution to the growing crisis, Fitzgibbon said his proposal would protect the most vulnerable while allowing the private sector to flourish without competition from Medicare, which he called a government monopoly. A sensible policy approach would be to make private health insurance compulsory for all Australians with taxation devoted to subsidising the premiums for those who would otherwise be left behind. Oh, my God. A caring man, this. That oh. is, high-income earners, etc. Well, the obvious, they'd pay and the others wouldn't. 
He claimed this would address an, in, an impending affordability crisis springing from the ageing of the population as the number of people of working taxpaying age falls in proportion to the number of ageing, that usual argument. Yeah, they're desperate for young people to take out insurance premiums that they don't need. That's right, yes. that's right. And, well, <laughs> Just pay the money year after year. He was responding to a Grattan Institute report which described the private health insurance industry as being in a death spiral as younger people abandon the increasingly expensive private market. Between December yeah. 16 and December 18, the report found the number of 20 to 29-year-olds with hospital cover had fallen by 8%. Governments have failed to clearly define the role of private health insurance since Medicare was introduced in the 80s, he said. Now, oh failed to clearly define. It's quite clearly defined. It's supposed to be a free health system for everybody. Yeah. The upshot is we have a muddled health care system that is riddled with inconsistencies and perverse incentives. Well, that's true. The perverse incentives are to join. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry he didn't say that. That, that was said by Stephen Duckett, a oh, former right. head of the health department, who'd wrote the report for them. I'm sorry, I got that all confused in my own stupid way. Um, so he's saying that it's, it's inconsistent and they're perverse incentives, the one we just talked about. Right, you know, right, right, right. Yep. The Institute argued the government had two options, either abandon inequitable subsidies, such as the 30% premium rebate entirely, or subsidise the private sector as a genuine alternative to Medicare, which is what, of course, Fitzgibbon wants. While not uh. explicitly taking a position, the report's arguments were weighted toward abolishing government subsidies, so they reckon it should stick to Medicare and get rid of the private lot. But uh. Fitzgibbon said abandoning subsidies would add 30% to premiums, the amount met by the government's health insurance rebate at a cost of $6 billion a year, leading to an exodus from private health funds and rocketing Medicare costs. So he cares, you see, about the costs. And it goes on, it goes on and on, but um, that's the latest is pushed by that lot because they're mm. losing money. They now say get rid of the public system mm. and uh, give it a... And, he, and in fact, he makes that point. It's, it's interesting. He says, I don't know why health insurance is any more life and death than the food we eat in the homes we live in. Well, other than many of the, much of the food we live in, we eat, killing us. That's life and death. <laughs> and some of the homes we live in may be doing the mm. same. I thought health was a life For and death. death. It is rather yes. a life and death situation. Yeah, I thought so. Um, Amazing. And we don't, and we don't make that, at that by that he means um, eat, eating in homes, a government monopoly. In this, in this proposal, people still get health care. It's just that rather than doing it through a social government-run insurance system, they do it through a private system. So health care <laughs> doesn't disappear. It's just that you can't afford to go and get it. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm speechless. Yeah, they are amazing, aren't they? Yeah, it's incredible. Absolutely amazing. I, don't, I just um, don't think that's a good idea. No, I don't think, okay. I don't think it's that good. No. Um, now, the other one, the other interesting thing is, how are we going on time? Yes, 27, we'll go on a bit longer. Um, the, uh, an Australian woman, Michelle Manuk, her name, um, she's worked for various um, resource companies here, mm -hmm. and she's just been become head of the World Coal Association. <laughs> and <laughs> Michelle says... The, um, she says, rising demand from developing countries means the commodity isn't going away and more cooperation is needed to support cleaner technologies to offset environmental concerns. Um, she says, if you choose coal, it does not mean you're in, you are ignoring climate change. There is technology that exists to make coal part of the solution. That's what they all say, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Whether that is high efficiency, low, low emissions or 
carbon capture used in storage, but somehow that got lost in translation. Well, any wonder. Yeah. Um, and she also, you know, they make the usual points that um, that the the poor need coal and we're robbing them, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So they just keep going. Capitalism, capitalism <laughs> really wants people not to be poor, I'm sure. Really what but want. she cares about climate change. Just that we, you know, we need coal to be part of it, yeah. um, and it certainly is. Um, mm. Now, the, this is an interesting story because we know that, um, despite her being there, our our federal minister Angus Taylor um, is a great supporter of of, of um, renewables and all that sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he just doesn't believe in climate change. Yeah, and, uh, okay. We have to have coal and the government even should finance a coal-fired power station. But yep. short of that, he's pretty good. Yep. And he, now there's a 370 million expansion of the grid in Western Victoria. Um, there's a proposal um, to unlock up to 6,000 megawatts of new wind and solar farms and this is, you know, this is advancing pretty well at the moment with loans and the companies getting involved, etc. Um, and analysis by the energy market operator, which is the Australian energy market operator, which is called that Australian energy market operator, um, found the project would deliver net benefits of three hundred million dollars, wow. setting it on a path toward construction. Which you know, it's, currently it's in that phase where they're talking about the proposals. Mm-hmm. But Angus has come out and said and said that um, he criticised the state Labor government for its reckless targets that are now now requiring hundreds of millions of dollars of additional insight investments to patch up the Victorian government's poorly planned market interventions. <gasps> the Andrews government, it's going for 50% by 2030. We remain concerned that reckless Victorian state government actions are hurting Victorian, Tasmanian and South Australian energy consumers. Well, and um, he voiced support for the cost-benefit testing, but anyway, the Victorian government has thrown taxpayer dollars at renewable developments in Western Victoria with no thought as to how these will properly connect with their grid. This is so annoying. As if, <sighs> as if there's not constant market interventions from, like, the federal government into all of these things. Like a like a Dani and all of the yeah. coal mines and everything, like all of the. You've noticed that. <laughs> yes, I have. Picked it up. I'm very annoyed. <laughs> yeah, that's I right. really, it's very annoying. Like if you want to like intervene in what you call the free market, then go ahead. But then let everybody else intervene, or else if it's really a free market, leave it alone. And then the things that don't work and no one wants and don't don't want to buy and are bad will stop because right. if you stop propping them up. They can't survive in yeah. this so-called free market. So yeah. Once they get into trouble, they call for government help. But once the government intervenes, you're right, the free market okay. stops being a free market. So stop pretending. like yeah, Just like right. abusing mm. the things that you don't like, like uh, you know, solar energy and wind power, and saying that they're market interventions. Well, despite what... Um but Angus said, and I, you know, we've got to listen to him. He's the minister. We've got to, listen, we've got to take him seriously, um, if anyone could. Um, a woman called Audrey Zibbleman, who's the chief of the, um, chief of the uh, operator, the market operator, said, under this proposal, for every dollar invested in the Western Victorian transmission network, the project is expected to deliver almost double that in benefits. What? So what's Angus? Angus, she, Angus must. He didn't get it wrong. She Did must I? be wrong. She yeah, wouldn't know. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. Right. Well, that's yeah. an exciting project. That's yeah. good news. It is. It yeah. is. Let's hope it all goes ahead. Yeah. And they're also, in fact, building more um, 
connections to the grid, etc. So, so that you know, because they, well, they do argue one of the problems is getting all this into the grid, but um, they're, mm. they're building infrastructure which will be ready by about 2025 to cover all that as well. So, yeah, it's, it's doable. Of, it's totally doable. Yep. And just before we go to that, um, that Rachel uh, Linsky um, interview, I just thought it was interesting. There was a um, a report came out. Um, it came out as part of that investigation into APRA. Oh, uh, yeah. Which looked at superannuation and recommends, of course, it's done the usual thing of recommending that um, the government virtually take over super and appoint directors, etc. So, you know, the usual thing the government wants. Mm-hmm. Report by Graham Samuel, who once for the trip of the Kennett government recommended almost every public hospital in Melbourne be closed. <laughs> um, but um, oh, anyway, uh, they, but it's interesting because they've, they've listed the top 10 and the top 10 in both. Um, in both poor returns for for their members, yep. and the top ten in terms of the the best returns for their members. Now, in terms of the top ten products uh, by five year returns, all but one, a uh, number eight, my super balanced, is a corporate retail super fund. Okay. The other nine are all industry funds. Right. Host Plus, Statewide, Australian Super, C-Bus, Uni Super, First Super, MTAA Super, NGS Super, whatever that is, and Intrust Super Fund, all industry funds. Huh. Go down to the bottom 10, mm. and how many industry funds in the bottom 10? There's nine in the top 10. Is there 10 in the bottom 10? There's one industry oh, fund. One, oh, one industry. industry fund. Yes, yes. Industry. Maritime Super is, is number six. Oh. Um, Num- whereas my super, the the corporate one, was number eight in the top ten. Yep. The other, the other um, nine are all corporate or retail. What are um, they? Well, there's a couple of public sector ones as well, but they, they but the, oh. there's Pitcher Retirement, oh. Commonwealth Essential, Q Super, Energy Industries, AMP Super. Perpetual Select, Asgard Independent, Commonwealth Bank, gee, and United Tech Corp are the bottom ten. I haven't heard of any of them except for the Commonwealth Bank. Oh, yeah, but anyway, they're all energy, they're all all industry type ones. Mm. So that's just interesting, isn't it? One one industry in the bottom ten, nine industries in the top ten. Mm -hmm. And and which ones are the governments attacking? Surely not the industry. Well, not, not based um, on that. It's hard to say, really. <laughs> <laughs> really hard to say. Look, I'll just go to one other matter. Okay. Um, with to do with industrial matters, apart from you know Colin Barris and Co not paying their workers. Well, that's right. Just, and then being well, on course. the front page of like the Good Weekend. On, <laughs> did you see that? Like they had this. Didn't notice that. No. no. Oh, I think it was the Good Weekend, and they had him. You know, big close up on his face, <laughs> looking really angelic, and it was all about him. I was like, oh, they must be doing a thing about how he's like exploiting all of his workers, and then they were like, he loves meditating, and it's so hard for chefs. Like, it's such a hard yeah. life. I was yeah. like, what's going on? Well, he says that you know that the, the bloody the award rates and and penalty rates are killing him. They attack profitability, poor man. But no, this bill the government's trying to bring in in which they're trying to um, get the Labor Party, saying the Labor Party has to support this. The Labor Party is bad if it doesn't support everything the government does now, apparently. What bill is it? Uh, And they are, unfortunately, they They are supporting it. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. It's this bill to, um, it's this bill to allow them much easier to sack, to, to sack unions and sack union officials. Um, called the Union Integrity Bill. Oh, God. Um, now, 
the the International Centre for Trade Union Rights, um, a bill designed to ease, or go on, a bill, to, bill designed to ease the deregistration of unions and officials is unprecedented and most closely resembles an 80-year-old Brazilian law introduced during the country's dictatorship, says a report by a union-funded think tank. The, Brit- <laughs> the Britain-based International Centre for Trade Union Rights wow. said the Ensuring Integrity Bill breached international conventions on labour rights by restricting workers' freedom of association and collective bargaining, even when they were not involved in wrongdoing doing. Now, at this point, is it worth pointing out, when they talk about, say, the Institute of Public Affairs, they never say a mm, a, a business-funded business think tank. Yeah. They just call them a think tank. tank. Mm-hmm. But this one, because it's um, union-funded, mm-hmm. you have to mention yeah, that, of course. And I mean, You can tell from the name that it's a union-related. <laughs> yes, you would have thought so. Yeah, you don't really need rights. That. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. Unless business sets up an international thing for trade union rights and it's actually a front for themselves. I mean, that's, that's I mean, quite that's possible. It. Yeah. Um, it, would, it will allow the Registered Organisations Commission a minister or a, and this is interesting, a person with a sufficient interest to apply to the federal court for a wide range of orders, including disqualifying an officer, deregistering a union, altering a union's eligibility rules, restricting the use of a union's funds or property and more. There is no equivalent for this in corporate law. The bill also allows such people to object to the amalgamation of unions in court, regardless of the wishes of that union's members. The International Centre for Trade Union Rights said the bill's expansion of of disqualification and deregistration powers to an undefined class of person was also an invitation to union busters and anti-union forces. We find no precedent for the degree of state interference in the functioning and establishment of trade unions in comparable industrialised liberal democracies said the report by Director Daniel Blackburn and researcher Kieran Cross. Currently, only those facing specific criminal convictions are disqualified from union office, but the bill seeks to expand this to include other criminal offences. Officials could also be disqualified and their union deregistered based on the actions of members, including if a substantial number repeatedly breached industrial laws or took obstructive, unprotected industrial action. The report said the bill conflates criminal fraud and other serious critics, uh, serious mm. crimes with minor infractions of industrial laws. It also blurs the liabilities of union officials and their unions by allowing sanctions against the entirety of a union's membership for the acts of individual officers as well as sanctions against individual officers for the acts of members or other officers not under their control. Turkey was one of the few states with similar explicit powers to disqualify a union official but noted that even Turkish law distinguished between offences by officials and those by members. Another country that grouped together serious crimes and lesser transgressions to disqualify union officials was Brazil. However, its laws were introduced during the Getulio Vargas dictatorship in 1943. Mm. In light of these three aspects, the Ensuring Integrity Bill appears cynically designed to encourage deeply damaging interference in trade unions' activities by using even minor instances of unlawful behaviour as an entry point in justification, the report said. Taken as a whole, the legislation spells a serious threat to trade union democracy. So there you are. That's Um, concerning. It is. How could uh, Labor vote with the government on this? Well, we hope they don't, but um, the way they're going, they're likely to to fall over backwards and, and Back off, buckle at the knees at the last minute, and come up wow. with some. And it really it's makes them yeah. really irrelevant if they're going to vote to support something like that. And of course, it'll go through if um, they can get enough votes in the Senate anyway. Um, and we just hope some of those putting them on a cross bench 
yeah. you know, and they're, but they're likely to do deals and pass it as well. But it's a very, very nasty bill. Yeah, there's 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 a few that are being mm-hmm. bandied around now. Yep. Look, let's um, go to this interview from uh, yesterday's Friends of the Earth program. We thank yeah. them for letting us use it, which mm. they haven't because we didn't ask them. <laughs> <Well>, but uh, <laughs> somebody might have. <laughs> we just we just we just pinched it. Apparently, it's going to start with Phil just giving a bit of a debrief about the. Yeah, situation. Phil was the presenter. Yeah. Yep. So first of all, I want to uh, give a little update on what is happening at the Jabwarung Embassy up near uh, Ballarat. So it has been a um, very long-running campaign um, opposing the extension of a highway up there and the way that it's been proposed to run through some sacred sites, including birthing trees and directional trees, and will ruin the sacred landscape up there. There's been a camp on site now for, it feels like quite a long time, almost a year, Um, and there is now currently a red alert that has been issued. That was issued on Monday. Um, The cops are coming, they say, with uh, eviction orders very soon, possibly even today. The major roads projects are seeking them in court and they camp are saying they won't concede their land. Um, they say they are sovereignty as survivors of the Jabwarung and their duty as warriors is to protect the land. They call this the front line and they say they need you now to defend sacred country. Uh, taking back the land is their birthright and a duty to protecting it is there for future generations and they call on you to do the right thing. They're asking that the road be rerouted a different way and the speed limit lowered on the current road. They say it's a battle for song lines. Supporting this struggle is a way of righting the wrongs of history and making peace with the lands and original people. Uh, We join them in saying, please support them. Send your body up there and make a change. It is so important. Get yourself to the Wariyatkin Road and Western Highway near Ararat. They say they can't win this without you. 3CR. Uh, we're joined in the studio by Rachel Linsky, who is the Sustainable Cities Coordinator at Friends of the Earth, a collective who have been working for some time now with lots of different community groups to build a community-powered transport plan and a vision for Victoria's transport future, one that is... Not reliant so much on roads, but active and public transport. Good morning, Rachel. How are you? Hey, Phil. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to have you in the studio. Um, There's been a lot going on on the roads front. We just heard about the Jabarong Embassy and the update there for the Red Alerts. Yeah, great to get that community call out there and get people up there to support the um, Indigenous-led campaign up there. Yeah, for sure. And um, huge respect and love and support and um, warm feelings, because I can imagine it is very cold up there. To everyone at the camp, um, we love you and please stay safe. Um, there's also been, uh, there's quite a few massive road projects in Melbourne, Indeed. unfortunately. Um, not happy times, but um, these are all... Uh, Coming uh, on the back of the state election, um, the Andrew government really went hard on roads, but on public transport as well. Indeed, yeah. Um, We've seen um, a lot of uh, infrastructure build spend um, coming out, um, whether it be the Westgate uh, Tunnel and also the North East Link. And we'll get to the North East Link in a minute. I just wanted to uh, send out um, a message of support to the CFMEU um, who recently discovered uh, PFAS, a dangerous water-soluble 
chemical on site at their works. And we've got a little excerpt um, from the CFMEU's Facebook page. This is at the Westgate Tunnel project site. Yes, yeah, at the Westgate Tunnel project site. And um, we're just going to play that for you now. Westgate, got PFAS contaminated area, which has been banned in 142 countries, state government, EPA project don't know how to deal with what's found in this soil and the contaminants and the effects that it has on people's health. The project's answer to it is get people in at night time and try and remove it throughout the night hoping that they won't get caught. This is how John Holland and CPB as a tier one are managing health and safety on the biggest government job going. Is what we're dealing with. So disturbing stuff there uh, on the Westgate Tunnel worksite. Yeah, it's absolutely uh, appalling to see the um, health and safety put at risk for those workers. And yeah, as a government project, you know, you'd really hope that they would be stepping up to protect the health and safety of um, all workers on government projects. Mm, for sure. And although uh, Friends of the Earth did oppose the project in the in the um, beginning, um, we do send out solidarity to workers facing those dangerous conditions because no one deserves to work in a toxic workplace. So um, big respect and solidarity out to the CFMEU workers working on the front line there. Absolutely. So that's just one of the projects. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they just uh, seem to be uh, mounting up. So um, the Northeast Link... Um, that's another huge project that the um, Andrews government has uh, laid down, um, extending the freeway. That final link, as mm. they always say with every uh, freeway extension. Indeed. I think when we're basing our uh, future plans on a 1960 um, plan, then it is going to be road heavy when we're kind of kicking off that road um, mania. And here we are in 2019, still continuing that plan. We think it's time for a new one, uh, one that yeah really centres public transport and active travel to get people out of cars and free up our roads um, for those that really need them, like our emergency services. Mm-hmm, for sure. So the North East, North East Link, um, yes. where is it? What is it? Um, just for those who aren't aware. So it's a massive uh, $16.5 billion price tag at the moment, a road that would uh, connect between the ring, M80 Ring Road through um, Greensboro, Heidelberg, um, down and connect to the Eastern Freeway around Bulleen. And then, in fact, a huge amount of the work is on the existing Eastern Freeway to widen it from its current, you know, 10 or so lanes to up to 20 lanes, including priority express lanes to get in traffic into the city and out of the city, um, just increasing the congestion that we're seeing already in our CBD, um, as well as um, some bus lanes on the, on the edge there. What this does do, though, is pave over um, with concrete more lanes for cars on a pathway that was meant to be for a railway line out to Doncaster that that community is still waiting for and still calling for. Yeah. Well, it seems a little backwards, doesn't it? I mean, cars, as you say, are um, part of a plan from the 1960s. Uh, you know, kind of really peaked in the 80s. I think we probably wanted to become Los Angeles and they ripped up all those rails and tram uh, lines in Melbourne. Um, why do you think um, we still have addiction to cars in Victoria? I think that there's a huge amount of pressure from various lobby groups, from the car lobby, from the um, toll lobby, you know, 
groups like Transurban putting forward the Westgate Tunnel Project, which um, our government has now partnered with to make happen. These companies are really pushing forward their agenda to make more money off everyday commuters who are just trying to go about their days. And by locking in more and more car-based infrastructure, it means we're actually locking out a lot of that money and investment that we could be seeing for public transport. Uh, We know more and more people want to use public transport when the option is given, people love it. They, you know, um, jump on on the train and enjoy uh, being able to be free of the congestion on our roads. Um, but we have to make sure that we're building those choices and building those uh, options for people uh, for the future. Sure. And you mentioned the the big pressure coming from uh, lobbying groups. And in reality, this is another front on the climate change um, crises that mm. we uh, fi- face ourselves in these days because uh, Victoria, I believe, uh, the second highest uh, um, source of greenhouse gases is uh, transport sector and the fastest growing, yes. which is disturbing. And we know that the vast majority of those emissions are from individual vehicles on the road. It's not coming largely from our freight network or you know planes and um, the, the public transport that we do have, even though it is currently run off uh, our electricity grid, which is very um, fossil fuel heavy. But we know that most of those emissions can be tackled through getting people out of cars and into more efficient transport onto bikes, you know, into buses and trams. Mm. Yeah, and we did have that good news uh, of the launch of that solar farm um, recently that uh, offsets the power of the tram network. Yeah, super exciting to see those jobs being created to build a solar farm um, in regional Victoria that is going to power the Melbourne tram network, our iconic trams. Now they're solar powered. Taking climate action and celebrating Melbourne's history. Love it. Indeed. (laughs) Let's see more of that. You know, next up, let's do all the trains. (laughs) Sure thing. So back to the Northeast Link. Uh, um, It's been a long and slow process going forward. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown of what's happened so far? Yeah, so we are in the process at the moment of the Environment Effects Statement, which is the big government um, and project investigation that looks at everything, not just the environmental in terms of um, biodiversity and um, uh, ecology impacts, but also health impacts, the social impacts to those communities out there, uh, the traffic and modelling impacts across the city, as well as uh, things like impact to Indigenous heritage and cultural sites. So it's a massive tens of thousands of pages of documents. Oh. Um, and people had the chance to make comment on this. Friends of the Earth were part of the campaign to really um, get people to make submissions. And it was a huge um, uh outpouring of uh, people putting forward their concerns with hundreds of submissions. The um, panel that assesses this all is now reading through them and then we will have public hearings coming up, kicking off this week. So both the proponents, local councils, as well as community groups and individuals can go along and talk um, directly to those uh, panel members about what their concerns are and um, really um, use use the opportunity to Um, recommend for those panel members to provide um, advice to the minister before um, the project moves any further forward, any further forward um, to, yeah, provide um, any advice if um, they want to really rescope the project um, or, in fact, it's a really important moment where they could, yeah, really, um, yeah, um, impose, you know, conditions that mean that the um, project could minimise impacts that it 
he's currently going to have. For sure. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of a rhyme or a really good acronym. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you're currently working on the idea of Rethink the Link. So um, this is a really good opportunity to really engage in that process, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. We know that this is just one part of the process, though. The submissions and the um, hearing process is is one part of it. But also we want to really make sure that people are out there getting their voices heard um, and doing some fun and creative actions. Mm. I unfortunately wasn't there, but a couple of weeks ago, a heap of community members gathered at the there's a Doncaster um, bus station that is hugely popular and potentially, you know, could be the site of a, an actual rail station that got people quickly and comfortably into their offices and um, at, uh, universities and whatever in the city. And yeah, these community community members turned up with hard hats and um, high vis vests and uh, stayed a bit of staged a bit of a mock uh, beginning of construction of the Doncaster Rail. We've been waiting for the government to do it since the 19, the 1890s and if they aren't going to get on and do it, then we'll get out there and do it. We've got coming up a bunch of banner drops, um, community outreach reach sessions, flying on the streets, postering, all that um, and it's a great way for people to get out there, um, spread the word about the project, the concerns with the project and get more people involved in the campaign. Yeah, for sure. And the Sustainable Cities Collective, uh, is it... Is it firing at the moment? Is it is it an exciting place to be? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, people are really fired up. And, yeah, this is a great opportunity to really make an impact on our city and, you know, what's, come, what's um, yeah, determining the future for um, projects that are happening in Melbourne. All right, well, you're listening to City Limits, but that was a bit of a grab from Dirt Radio. Uh, it's Phil and Rachel talking about the Sustainable Cities Project that Friends of the Earth do and um, covered a lot of ground there. Did indeed. A lot of, unfortunately, concrete ground. <laughs> yeah, a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of concreting of yes. yeah, the ground. Your comments on that? Uh, um, well, look, the, I mean, there's a, there's a lot there. Um, I guess one of the things uh, I'm interested in is the fact that they're going to concrete over a railway line. That's, that's bad news. Mm-hmm. And that's um, a real lack of foresight. And railway line that never happened. Right, right. <laughs> over the land that has been allocated for a railway line. Yeah. Um, and and also we should say that we heard in, in the break then about what's happening up at Ararat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, the, well the, what we heard is the bulldozers are expected to move in today. Uh, so the police will be trying to clear the place. So... Um, I know it's a big ask, but if anyone can get up there, just head, if you head toward Ararat, just this side of Ararat, you can't miss the uh, site. Right. Um, and there are um, directions online if you if you Google Jobwarung Embassy or Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance or if you yeah. go on Facebook and yeah. and look that up. And um, if you can't get there, you can donate to those places. You as can well. donate. Yeah. And yeah. if you don't want to be like on the front line, you mm. can – there is lots of things that people can do to support, including bringing food and other resources and, um, yeah, giving yeah. what you can. Yeah. Yep. And um, that railway line is interesting. I've met, we've mentioned on the program before, but that reserve – which is now the Eastern Freeway, was originally set aside by the Board of Works, which was the Road Authority way back, mm-hmm. um, the Melbourne and Metropolitan Board of Works. They set that aside as the railway line from Doncaster all those years ago 
and we have an eastern freeway, and all these yeah. years later, the railway line has never ever been built. Yeah. Despite um, a bloke called Bill, uh, whose name will come to me, um, at Monash did two or three reports for governments recommending the railway line was essential. Yeah. And of course, having built the freeway, you've now established a pattern of transport in that corridor that's going to be very hard to reverse. Yeah. Even if you do put a railway line in, but but they won't now because they're going to build over the bloody thing. But well, that, yeah, it's, yeah, that's it's that's outrageous. The, that's the thing from the interview that that um, both of them said was how cars are such an outdated idea, but where not maybe we're kind of addicted to them, but also it's a matter of um, can the the design makes it really difficult to survive without a car. If you live in any of these areas that aren't properly served by public transport, but just a little bit of intelligence and and design and planning can make these places much easier for people to survive without a car, which is really where we have to go. Give people a viable, frequent public transport system. Yeah, and something that's affordable. And, I mean, this is the thing when the free market and private interests are left to look after our transport, then this is what happens. Um, mm. And instead of the what, – what, what I understand used to happen is that governments would, you know, do these infrastructure builds. And there's going to be a massive expansion of the Eastern Freeway once it, once it comes in. And that's in a creek valley. I remember people crying as trees were torn down in the Kunung Creek Valley for the original Eastern Freeway expansion at that mm. time. But um, – yeah, it's going to, just going to rip out more and more of those creek valleys. Um, probably what happens to the creek, I've got, they've already redirected the creek and concreted it there. Yep. There was one where they actually tore down trees, put a freeway through, redirected the creek, concreted it, and then Vic Road said, we have enhanced the quality of the creek valley. I mean, <laughs> and, 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 and on that and on the Ararat situation, Vic Roads also claims to be the second biggest tree planter in Victoria next to the State Forestry Commission, which also allows people to tear them down as mm-hmm. well. Um, mm-hmm. but, it's not, it doesn't count but, if you plant no, them again so, after you've ta- cut them all down. So yeah. despite what's happening at Ararat and, and on, the, and in, on these, these other freeways, we have to admire Vic Roads for their yeah. capacity to plant trees. Right, good on them. them. Right but next I mean, to, yeah. the Victorian government's in this point yeah. of having you know discussions about treaty with the Indigenous nations of this state and then to turn around and allow this to happen is so shameful very good point to finish on i think yeah bloody important point um all right next week's a fifth wednesday similar similar no program (laughs) (laughs) if you enjoyed this tune in because it's going to be really similar (laughs) see you then You call